0: Welcome to Surviving Society
1: with Shan and Tiso.
0: This season's broad theme is
1: reconfiguring whiteness. Welcome to Surviving Society with Utsho Mukherjee.
0: We are going to talk about something really interesting.
1: No, it's super interesting.
0: Take it away. Tell us about your research, Utsho.
2: Yes, so my research basically looks into the leisure activities of British Indian children who are growing up in and around London. So I was really interested to find this out because if you look into the kind of time use surveys that have been done with children uh, across Europe and of course in the UK, you see that the lag of time that there is between children's end of school hours and their bedtime is increasingly being spent in this structured, paid-for-leisure activities. and. I'll just give you a figure. In 2018 alone, every week, £67 million was spent in structured leisure lesson subscription by both adults and children in the UK. So that gives you a magnitude of the kind of money that is being spent in this kind of thing. So when I was looking into the literature around this, firstly, most of the literature was about looking into the parenting side of it, so it being a very parenting ideology-driven practice, and people are talking about class, but they're not talking about race and ethnicity. So most of the things that we know about these children's leisure lessons are based on studies done with white middle class parents, both in the UK and in the US. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I thought looking into middle classes from ethnic minority background, like the British Indians, would be an interesting point of entry into sort of unpacking what is actually going on in these leisure spaces. It's really interesting. How
0: did did you get into leisure? How did you get into this sort of subject in general?
2: I was really interested in children's lives Mm. because children have been very invisible almost in sociology, in the history of sociology and of anthropology. Children have rarely been talked about, and even when they've been talked about, it's second-hand accounts of children, so produced by parents or teachers. Mm -hmm. We don't really hear children speak, so as it were, in sociological accounts historically.
0: Why do you think that is?
2: I think there has been an idea of a very unidirectional notion of socialization, that children are not social yet. They will become yeah, social. I think
0: that's what I, I think that's what I think as well. No, but, but that's not right.
1: No, right. Obviously, again that's a tradition based in Western theory, right? Yes. That children have seen and not heard. Like they, they haven't developed that reason. Locke talks about that, the idea that they're not they haven't got reason yet, so we don't just, talk to them yet. Just
2: leave them. Until
1: they become adults, right?
2: Yeah. So the the and sociology has reproduced that saying that well. Children are future adults, (laughs) so they are of interest as long as they tell us something about what they will become in the future. (laughs) So they are not of interest in the here and now. And then sort of 1980s and early 1990s, a group of scholars in the UK, in the Nordic countries started talking about why is this so. They talked about the kind of adult centrism of sociology. Mm. So we talk about other marginalized voices, but children also marginalized group within sociology, Mm. their interests, perspectives, how they look at the world is never really talked about. Mm. And that can offer another perspective on the world. Mm. Something which might be different from adults, but no less legitimate. <laughs> and that is called what we call new sociology of childhood. Something which puts children's agency, children's voices at the heart of the research. I love that. I love that. It's powerful,
1: right?
0: That's so powerful. Pa- Do you know, you're, you're such a good like projector, can I just say? Like, I'm just so engaged. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, everything you're saying, no, you're really an orator. I think, I think
1: it's irrelevant, especially somewhere in the UK where... At the moment, something like Brexit was voted on and the majority of older people voted to leave. But young people who majority voted to, to remain, they feel like their voices are not being heard, right? So there was a, a movement in this country that yeah. people for the young people don't feel they have that voice. If academia can bring a lens to kind of show why these voices are important... Most of the population, well, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, is going to be in Europe, has got a declining population. So be the voices of the young people is very relevant right now.
2: Yeah. And there's so much to unpack in what you said. Firstly, the idea that's very intimate link between childhood and nation. Mm-hmm. So how the nation get projected into the child. Younger nations, for example, quote unquote, like nations which got independence in the 1950s onwards, sure. were being seen as nations in infancy. So places like India or even Ireland, we talked about in that sense. So mm-hmm. Children offer that metaphor to talk about new institutions. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that a nation's hopes get pinned on children. So everything can talked about in terms of, oh, we are doing this because we are investing in our children's future. So mm-hmm. it becomes a very powerful political uh, message. And I think it was one of, very recently, I guess, I don't know, or last year or so, the historian Niall Ferguson. Oh, yes. he yes, talked about okay. Milton Keynes, say, not Milton Keynes, uh, Lord Maynard Keynes, yeah. saying that, well, he was gay, he didn't have children, that's why he didn't care about the kind of policies he talked about. Mm-hmm. So as if having children or or thinking about things with the child in mind makes you a better policymaker. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I, I have to have my hat, hold my hands up. I reckon I have been susceptible to that to that sort of discourse as well. But you're right, like we have to
2: challenge that. Yeah, and, and in all of this sort of use of children as metaphors and as political kind of symbols, we don't really know what children feel about this. How do they participate in the social world?
1: This is what I was going to say to you. So from your research... What does the child, who is the subject of all this leisure activity, what becomes of the child? Are they a, are they a thing for me to project all my, I suppose, my desires, my wish for success? It's almost like, I suppose, parents do sometimes live vicariously through your oh, child, right, to achieve what I did, and maybe that's part of being a parent. I want my child to do better than I did. I want them to do to have this kind of personality. I want them to navigate that social world better than I did because I didn't have the keys to enter that social world. Initially, I would say, oh, yeah, we don't, want, we don't want that. But initially, sometimes, I think parents do want that. So no, there's not a right or wrong answer. I think it's just...
2: And I do talk about in my research in what I call a vicarious fulfillment of their of their <clears throat> own desires. So, And this is particularly sort of interesting when it comes to ethnic minority parents. <clears throat> because I have two sets of parents in my study. One who were born in the UK... <clears throat> and grew up in the UK, of Indian background. And others who actually migrated from India in the last, say, two decades, and are now British citizens. So for the first lot of parents who actually grew up in India, or grew up in the UK, their parents worked in factories and manual jobs, Mm -hmm. and they went to state schools, had a very working-class upbringing. So there are certain things that they wanted to do, they couldn't, because their parents either couldn't afford or never had the money or the time. So they couldn't take... One of the parents told me that he wanted to be a football player, mm. but his father was working on a Saturday morning in, in his factory, and he didn't have a lot of money, so he didn't, couldn't I take him it. to this uh, yeah. coaching and so on. So now he makes an extra effort to take his son, so he'd stand sort of, he'd sit in his car at five o'clock, wait, uh, seeing his uh, child sort of uh, have his uh, football training. In the cold. But he, he, he is happy to do that. He's happy to make his work schedule fit his child's leisure lessons because he wants his child to have all the opportunity that he didn't. And the children are also very aware of that, that parents have the means to play the leisure market. So they know that if you want to try something, they'll let us try. Even if you are not good at it or don't want to continue, that's fine. So it's a very kind of neoliberal playing of the leisure market.
1: Uh, and this is one of the things I've noticed in my own experience recently, Working class people offering their kids all this opportunity, but the kids don't appreciate it. They think it's normal. So he has no, the, the kids don't have no um, understanding. Like they'll start something and they say, I don't fancy that. They do it for a day. There's no dedication. There's no, there's no trying. They know because their parents will play the market and pay, and pay for all the stuff that goes in. So it's not cheap. For example, it might be football or kickboxing. There's stuff that goes along with it. And they think it's quite normal, just chop and change. Yeah. This is
0: what no, but what you're saying, T. This is what sort of kills me a little bit, and I get, I get, I have to be a bit more patient, I think, with it because times have changed. But how disposable leisure seems to be to some kids, and this is just in my like experience mm-hmm. in my little world. Like this isn't all like young people, and you're going to tell us about your data. But how disposable things are in life. It's like, oh my god, I would have fucking killed to be able to do that. But like, am I projecting my? how I want kids to be grateful onto them like is that unfair or is it as you say this kind of neoliberal sort of thing it, that we're bringing children into
1: I, or... I, they're socialised right so they have an awareness that they can play the market for example with my leisure activity I had no choice my mum took me to karate she taught me I cried I couldn't come home I just stayed there and I went next week and the week after and the week after and it taught me a lesson dedication discipline things that things that you need right Yeah. And there's valuable skills, and I suppose that's the whole point of these leisure activities to teach certain skills. And where these things are not apparent at sometimes, like when you're a kid, you don't really see that. But the fact that neoliberalism offers you a way out, it offers you the choice if you have that income. Now, middle-class people can play it slightly differently. You've got that income to make that choice. But working-class people trying to construct those opportunities for kids, but if they feel that their friends are in the hockey club and they want to go to and they've just started football. It, it creates problems.
2: Yeah. But also I think some of the things that you said, firstly, the body itself is a site for work. So mm-hmm. I, talk, I talk about body work. So leisure yeah. becomes a site of body work. So you yeah. instill discipline, concentration inside the body. So it becomes something instilled within. So even the notion of power, if you think about it, mm-hmm. it gets instilled inside rather than outside the body. So it's not something imposed on it. It grows from within. So that idea was very much present. So parents are very aware of that. And they were explicitly talking about this training the body through leisure. And this kind of body training almost gives you that sense of ease and comfort to navigate the social spaces. Right? So there's somebody in the US talks about ease as a kind of class disposition. Mm. That it's not... Being able to eat your food in a certain manner in a space, but what about, about how every day that thing is? How nonchalant you are, said so how you carry yourself, and that you learn through this kind of bodily training.
1: I think, and like I said, this is a, a topic we picked up as a body site of work in kind of uh, Lucian Trimble's work. I this, the body is a site of work, so people train their body, but that. Body, your body embodies certain values. Yes.
2: And class. And, and class, class. Yeah, and gender. And, yeah, and so, gender. Yeah. So yeah.
1: you can navigate certain spaces differently.
2: By the resources you so have, have resources inside your resources body. Resources
1: you have and how it's displayed yeah. yes. in terms of medals, or in terms of how you look, or in terms of the clubs that you got with the badges and all this kind of stuff.
2: Yes, but also the karate bit of it, because that was something that completely took me away surprise. the prize. When I was talking to these parents, there was quite a prevalence of martial arts Taekwondo, karate, and so on. And when I dug a bit deeper, mm-hmm. one parent gave me an example of how when her son moved from India to the UK when he was six and started his schooling here. So he had a very distinctive Indian-English accent. And then he got picked on in school and he was sort of bullied and so on. And this motivated the mother to send him to Taekwondo lesson to be prepared if there's an instance of racism and bullying. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, this investment in bodily training also has that race and ethnicity dimension mm-hmm. that came out quite often in terms of uh, uh, body de- de- defence, sort of learning self-defence.
1: But see, and, and this is the thing. So, when I, when I was sent yeah. to school, the, w- the reason why people... Were, I started martial arts or boxing was the idea, and it's true, it self-defence. If someone starts something you can defend yourself. What I learned is if you're not that way inclined, doesn't matter how much martial arts or self-defence you know, yeah. you're going to get beaten up because... You've learned a technique, yeah. So you don't know how to defend. It's not something. You're not a fighter. There's a difference, right?
2: But I guess the the fact that even this idea is coming in that mm-hmm. yeah. the, you're talking about mm-hmm. about leisure in terms of learning self defense mm-hmm. has a lot to do with that kind of ethnic and mm-hmm. racial location of these parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like white middle class parents did not think about. I'm
0: even think about that. Yeah,
2: because that that doesn't apply because they it's it's completely out of their sort of everyday experiences
0: slightly different but I think along the sort of ethnicised, racialized leisure activities like I did I played netball and I did dancing like those were my leisure activities growing up and I do feel like listening to you talk now and thinking about my own experience growing up in a being black growing up in a predominantly white town one of the reasons why I was so adamant of pursuing dance is because that's the where, where I saw myself whether it's on MTV, like, <laughs> Top of the Pops, like, the people that looked like me were dancing. I was like, okay, that's what I'll do. Like, that's what people expect me to do, so I'll do that. I, obviously, I loved it, and I mm. used to win lots of medals and stuff, but, like, there definitely was a sort of a racialised element to it, like a sort yeah. of my own self-fulfilling prophecy uh, type
2: thing. And also because of the politics of representation there, like yeah. how those kind of, if you like, subcultures were portrayed yeah. in a way for South Asians, on the other hand, like television or anything like even mtv or whatever you talk about would not necessarily have a lot of south asian presence no of course it only has south asian presence in terms of the sort of the garish wedding or religious festivals and so on so some of the parents who grew up in the uk talked about how they would rent vcrs back in the day and watch indian films together and that became a thing for bonding and so it was only not only bonding inside the family, but also bonding with the transnational identity mm-hmm. that was not here, if you mm-hmm. like. Mainstream media wasn't giving them that representation. But
1: I, I, I think that's quite interesting because there is a nation state to be located with and the Indians are not in diaspora, as say black people from say the Afro-Caribbean side. These kind of events that we're looking for, where you can kind of, in those legislative to, to find out identity, those values of wherever the home country is, is difficult. And I find... That this is problematic. There's brands of, in my case, blackness. So, m- my mum tried to send me to a after school club for maths, aimed to try trying to make you more middle class, to be more upwardly mobile. And then, but I was sent to also another one, which was very, I guess, more urbanly focused, right? Then
2: more cosmopolitan,
1: if you like. Yeah, more. So this is and this is what people do. And you look at for brands to reflect brands of your identity to reflect
2: a culture, a
1: culture to kind of push you forward, right?
2: Yes, in that sense. If I give you a, uh, another set of figures, it will make a bit more sense about <laughs> the British Indians. So if you look into the Cabinet Office paper around uh, the, what they call the ethnicity audit that they did, or even the ethnicity pay gap, with all of that we see British Indians are sort of outstripping, like British Indian children out, outstripping their white peers in education. Uh-huh. Even the ethnicity pay gap doesn't really apply to British Indians because they, if you're British Indian, you're most likely of all ethnic groups, including whites, to be in the highest-ranking occupation. So there's something going on with British Indians, not with British Pakistanis, not with British Bangladeshis, or with black people in the UK. But there's something going on with the British Indian population as such, where they are, in terms of their hourly pay, educational attainment, occupations, and so on, they are relatively better off. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is what, like, such an important point, because this is why categories like BME BAME they just don't really tell the full story do yeah. they they're, re- they're quite reductive in a lot of ways particularly when we're looking at education and i mean it would be really good to hear about how your research and your findings relate to that's what that story is what is happening with british indians what is happening with the children
2: but also i would say that sort of yes there are differences but also there are sort of there are common goals to be pursued of course around, of course. around racism and so forth of course. which has been i think that project has also also taken a step in recent years that kind of the pan kind of uh, solidarity yeah, if you like
1: but i was going to say to you so this context of british indians do you think it's linked to the colonial structure that was that was present right so i was talking to someone uh, this week about the punjab he he was adamant on the, the kind of he's from the punjab himself and he was a i want to say he was an engineer but they 're also quite highly skilled doctors and from that region of India, I was arguing trying to argue that there 's a colonial influence, like the idea we have favored races, martial races, intelligent races and that 's a hangover from the colonial past right so is that is there something to do with that or
2: yes uh, like I think especially even in India today, if you mm-hmm. go and talk to middle classes there 's a very very like a great emphasis on education mm-hmm. in and of itself, mm-hmm. so education is a certain aura to itself in a way that it perhaps doesn't even have among middle classes here mm-hmm. that being good at studies mm-hmm. so when I was talking to parents here especially parents who had grown up in India they were complaining about how lenient the British education system is <laughs> the children are not being put under the kind of pressure that they should too light too project-based there are less homework like they were like what's going on what's wrong with these people why are they not like making them do more tough like yeah, yeah. things. No, yeah, yeah. So in that sense, there, there is like, there, and there has been some literature around it about Indian middle classes as such. Mm-hmm. And now in the diaspora, I think that sense of education being a thing which is good of in and of itself mm-hmm. has been reproduced. Mm-hmm. And therefore these people have, sort of invest in education as a means to yeah, to overcome, transcend to, yeah, to those, those problems that they have.
1: In India, is there, is there a kind of cachet for like being well educated and speaking English?
2: Exactly. So English is an aspirational language. <laughs> and, and the class divide is also an English divide. <laughs> so if you, if you are middle class or upper middle class and you're aspirational, <laughs> then you enroll your child into an English medium school, which you have to, you have to privately pay for. Mm-hmm. But again there are gradations within it there can be really cheap english medium schools mm-hmm. but again it's one way of forming your class identity mm-hmm. so if you are english educated chances are that you are from a very middle class stock and then when it comes to high paying jobs they expect english education they because there's no one language that works all across india mm-hmm. english is one that mm-hmm. does so therefore if, if you have you to be mobile and to work anywhere you like in top posts it all happens in english <laughs> And working class people then lose out. They lose
1: out. So what I was going to say, the graduation I was finally thinking, so what kind of English is it? Is there a premium on UK English versus an American English?
2: Well, uh, that really depends because what kind of job you're doing. Mm -hmm. And the difference of UK and American English is not that stark in India. Mm -hmm. In terms of accent, not really. But there is, of course, the the UK English is always the kind of English that is taught as grammar. Mm -hmm. So we learned, I grew up in India, Mm -hmm. and we learned to say C-O-L-O-U-R rather than C-O-L-O-R. So in grammar and structure, yes. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, with the accent business, it's where you are working. If you're working in an American kind of um, firm where you're doing the back office work, the outsourced work, they often teach you American accent to work. Wow. Or if you're, to, if you're in a call center, because if you're calling your <laughs> I don't know, your heating company or your phone company or whoever, and it goes diverted to India and someone picks up and gives you a English first name
1: mm-hmm.
2: and tries to, to kind of talk in an English accent,
1: mm-hmm.
2: then they're trained in that accent. Yeah. So the moment they come out of, the, of that phone call, they will speak in the way they do. Mm-hmm. And actually, in one of the child that I spoke to, his mother told me that when he faced a bit of racism at school, I shouldn't said beat of racism. It was racism, oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. and this kind of bullying because of his accent. He has started switching his accent. So at school and with certain people, he speaks in a British accent. At home with his parents, he speaks in an Indian English accent.
1: Uh, but, but that's that's a common a common defense strategy to use, right? Yeah. To kind of to fit in to conform, you will lose some of your identity in certain in certain spaces, which is yeah, it's horrendous. It's a horrible thing to go through as a child, right? But. I think I think what's important, what's interesting is, like I said, what happens, the leisure activities that people are choosing are there's definitely aspirational for the parent, and like I said, it's unidirectional; it's us telling them, but no agency from the child is ever looked at or kind of considered. Is that right, or uh,
2: not necessarily? So, what uh, happened in the kind of again, it's very, it's a it, it's a particular sample, it's a particular set of parents; it mm. can only be generalized beyond that. But what I found, what I call them, are more negotiated choices. Mm-hmm. So what happens, even when parents choose an activity, they don't impose them. So the, the mechanism they follow is they shortlist something, either their own choice or they have heard from others, or it's just convenient. It happens around the block, whatever it is. So they shortlist it and take the child for a few test lessons mm-hmm. and gives the child that say. So there is that democratization happening within families which, again, is a very middle-class trend. It <laughs> has yeah. been talked about. Middle-class so.
0: people that ask their kids, what do you want all the yes. time, honestly? So why why, why is day day day. so much? Why are you giving them choice? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's...
2: So no, 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 I think if it like... <laughs> that's so bad. There's so if much choice talks all about the it, yeah?
1: I But the, I, said, I said this to someone. I said, like... This is, no, this is not no, a democracy, no. right? It's a, <laughs> it's a totalitarian state and I'm in charge, right? Because I pay for everything. So what are you going to do? What what are you going to do?
2: No, T, we're out of but, date with that.
1: But there's a, there's also an understanding of following orders, right? You don't always get a choice. I
2: mean, like, but I think this sort of differential kind of treatment that you defer to figures of authority yeah. is something that middle-class parents do not want their children to grow up with. They want their children to be able to sort of talk sort of talk back but sort of be able to challenge challenge things and earn what is legitimate and that in that sort of way. So this this children are growing up with their sense of confidence. Yeah, they yeah, can yeah. negotiate. They're not they they are legitimate actors.
1: Do you know what right? That's so true. I I see exactly. it. it's so true. But you know what I think my own working class is I think <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> No, that, what happens to me. It's like, I see that and this kind of this kind of confidence gets cultivated in their schools. If they if yes. they attend private schools, it's cultivated, and cultivated. And so, initially, when you meet them, so if we have a family gathering and some of the kids are from private school, our working class parents would like, well, why are they always speaking? They don't understand yes. that why this person's so confident or feels like they can talk on on adult invert in what are these called air quotes air quotes in adult situations because they tend to speak up a lot, right? Yeah, no. Sort of,
2: I'll give you an example. Sort of in. A dinner table conversation. <laughs> they will talk about things like which are very informative. So the children are learning things even in the dinner table. <laughs> Not only the manners, but also sort of eating more cosmopolitan food and the food history and all kinds of things get talked about. And then they have this sense of they their voices matter. <laughs> so they get asked, Oh, do you like this? Is it something that would you like to do? If you don't like to do, that's fine, we can drop off. So then, with this confidence, they can use in school, mm-hmm. and when they use this in school, they're already ahead of others mm-hmm. in the race. Mm. So to be good at school, you need this training, which the school doesn't provide, mm-hmm. but which you need to succeed in school. Mm-hmm. It's like
0: a, a combination of culture and social
2: capital. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, and and the kind of and the kind of processes through which this this capital get not only. Uh, Expended, but also how they are performed and how they are sort of exacerbated as it Mm -hmm. goes.
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about some of your key findings? And in particular, it'd be really interesting if you could sort of distinguish between the the parents that were that had grown up in India and the parents that had grown up in Britain, and sort of the differences and similarities. Like, what 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 can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so as I was saying, with the UK-born parents, because they have themselves experienced. A sort of class mobility, if you like. So they have grown up in particular middle, uh, sort of working class circumstances, parents working in manual jobs and so on. And then now they are high earning professionals. They're all university. So all the parents across the board were university educated. They all had their own homes. They all um, were working as high earning professionals, either in IT or as management consultants or teachers in that kind of professions. So the their current class locations are broadly similar, but the way they got there are different. And it is this is trajectory, if you like. So class not only as a current location, but also as a kind of process, as a trajectory. And it's a trajectory which is a bit different for the two groups. So for one group it's a it's a class mobility, the other is the geographical mobility. So this the India-born parents grew up in middle class, English educated households. So they went to fee-paying English medium schools in India. So they were the privileged kind of middle-class people who already had the kind of resources that they can use to then sort of be global kind of professionals, right? So they can go and work in the U.S. They can, some of them did, actually. They have worked in Japan, in U.S., and then decided to settle in the U.K. So they, they, have the kind of, they are the kind of people whom the U.K. government want, in a sense. So they meet the kind of the visa criterias. They are people with, with certain skills which are in shortage in this country and which are needed. So these are the kind of people who are already privileged. And then they come and they have the resources to play the market even more and corner those privileges for their children, pass
1: it on. And so that's how wealth and privileges gets stuck, gets frozen. But it's quite interesting. You said the thing about visas, right? I was reading an article today about the growth of golden visas. What's in, that? So where. Countries are offering if you've got enough money to buy a visa to skip all those processes.
2: On oh, the Caribbean,
1: that is, isn't it? Latvia, Even Saudi Arabia, you can
2: buy a passport with. with mm-hmm. yeah. if you have enough money. If you can, have if money, you, yes, you get, a, you get a citizenship straight away. With so citizenship. You, can, you
1: can pay you can pay for citizenship, right? So already, if they're not cornering it that way, if you just have the money, you can skip all that.
2: Yeah, like in the UK, you have investor visa. So if you have lots of money...
1: Two million, isn't it? Yeah, whatever,
2: yeah I'm not sure about the, the yeah, sum, yeah, but, but it is quite a bit of money. So if you decide to invest in, it, in the UK with that amount of money, then you get an investor visa, entrepreneur visa, yeah. state of you don't have to go through yeah, the yeah, hurdles.
1: Yeah. I read that today, it's two million pounds. If you can invest, boom, bless you. And, yeah. But this is... In a globalised economy, this is quite scary because you're, you're kind of building in inequality into yeah. the system well, further into the system.
2: The immigration system is based on that class idea that people who are professionals already have the kind of money resources that are needed to Mm. sort of succeed, if you like, within the UK system are the people who get given visa and get those treatment. And the people who do not have those resources do not get the visa. Mm. Or they cannot come to the UK legally to work because their skills are not in a particular list. Of the highest skill. so it's only privileged people who do get to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then and then and 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 for both, I think for the both group of parents, despite these different trajectories, they all think that they need to take certain steps to make sure that the privileges that they have garnered gets passed on, and if anything, maximized across generation. So it's not enough to have them; it's enough, It's important to pass on, pass them on. And
0: I feel like that practice isn't something that's racialized. Like that's something that you see across, like white. That's that's white class. Across, across, it's a class
2: like, like Yes, but given that they're ethnic minorities and there's what you call ethnic penalties that they have to do certain things, try yeah. even harder to get same. Things of course, done. no.
0: I'm not saying that the journey to getting that is the same. I'm just saying that like keeping that privilege and wealth close by is something that yes it applies mid, across board class but but i would,
2: guess with yeah. the ethnic minority middle classes it 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 has an added urgency yeah because it could be that taken you away. cannot lose out yeah you have to try harder than anybody else mm. Mm. to get the same things done so it's, it's more urgent that you do that but also i think it's a it's also the kind of the middle class common sense which is becoming the dominant narrative that if you do not send your children to these lessons if you do not give them that sort of space to Show their sort of um, to express their opinion and so on, then they are not good parents. So, the idea of good parent and the idea of middle class parent is increasingly <laughs> being conflated.
1: It, mm-hmm. This is one of the things that I picked up Lisa McKenzie's book on getting by, and she talks about working class mothers and the idea of being a good parent features promptly. But because of the resources that they have or them not performing to some, some, some sort of economic criteria, providing your child with X or Y. The thought that they could not be seen to be as a good mother. Okay. And that kind of conflation between the economic success and middle class values, that is one of the things that's pushing the pressure on people who are working class. Yes. right? And then they try
2: to sort of go out of their way <clears throat> to try and match those standards which are set by middle class people. Mm. And then that creates the even bigger problems. It does.
1: And it creates a problem because it creates that child becomes a consumer because they, they see success through things. And so they have, every child might have X amount of electronics in their house, but each of these things cost them a thousand pounds, but their parents only bring in 500 pounds. So the parent is paying an economic penalty just for being who they are. And this is one of the things I see, especially amongst working class kids. And I suppose it's got worse as things have gone along, as, as things become more democratised. So it in, in my day, it was trainers became a symbol of success, right? But trainers were £80, £70. Pounds. In 2019, an iPhone's £1,000. But it's a thing that people need to have. Kids need to have that, otherwise they're relatively poor. Yeah. And this is one of the things that, this, these cultural values that have become normalised.
2: Yes. And also, uh, I, there's, a, there's a term that Frank Furedi uh, uses, the sociologist, called mm-hmm. parental determinism. So what he says that there's an understanding among parents that whatever they do, Have long term consequences for their children. So it's not, so parenting cannot be a casual thing. Everything they do will have a consequence for the child. So the parents become aware of that. And I I saw that in these parents as well. So they were aware of this narrative. They thought whatever they were doing are directly impacting their children's future. So they were trying to invest in the kind of pathways. That can shape their children's future in terms of getting into selective universities, in terms of getting uh, getting a good job later on. Mm-hmm. So everything gets done with that in mind. So it's a very instrumental notion of leisure, as it is a very instrumental notion of education.
0: That reminds me of um, when I first read your abstract. I sort of immediate immediately sorry differentiated between instrumental leisure activities and necessary leisure activities. Necessary leisure activities being, not necessarily leisure, but necessary outside of home and school activities being breakfast clubs and after-school clubs, where there isn't a structured um, activity or sport, but you're in those sessions because your parent has to work, is doing shift work, can't afford to do half days or anything like that. And it immediately just like highlighted to me reading um, your abstract, like that clear class difference as well. Yes. Like obviously you have, like there's loads of middle class kids that have to go to breakfast club and after school club, but like they'll also have gymnastics, yeah. uh, music lesson, um, like um athletics, but not necessarily that for the working class kids. Like, like by choice and by
2: chance. Isn't yeah. you almost yeah. there by default because there's nothing else you can do.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you'll have your there, and you'll yeah,
2: get... Yeah. But the thing is, even if, if, even if they go to this kind of more if you like compulsory ones are the one that you just need to go to. Mm-hmm. These parents would frame that in a way that, well, if they go to these places, they get to mingle with more people. They oh, pick up okay. communication skills. Is, so, that what you,
0: is that what your parents yeah, yeah. said? So, wow, anything, have mom any,
2: mom. so <laughs> anything to do with other children, interacting with other children, eating uh, together, playing together, so on, gets framed using that s- notion of skill. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to make friends. What is important is that you are knowing, you're learning how to be a more social actor. No, no, and, like? and
1: this kind of represents, kind of, I think in our own experiences, represents how we deal with these people. So sometimes, when we, as I've got older, I'm more aware of these social divides. Because how you necessarily speak to me or behave or your value system is very different from mine. So, whereas I would be quite upfront and speak to tell you to your face, they're looking to negotiate and have almost, from my point of view, becomes like a passive-aggressive conversation. But for their point of view, it's a kind of idea of that's how they've been taught to train to negotiate, confrontation, or or anything like that. And it's a very it's a very strange thing, to, especially now as I've got older, I've come across it more often in, in different spaces. So, be it the corporate space, in academia, this is how people are trained. I'm trained myself. Yes. In, my, in my own social world, how to navigate these kind of places. So,
2: yes, Again, like not directly related, but I'll give you an example of, say, the difference between Indian academia and uh, UK academia in terms of how you do this. Mm-hmm. So in the Indian academia, you would always call your teachers sir or professor, sir or ma'am. Mm-hmm. So there's no first name basis. Mm-hmm. And that makes so much difference in the kind of conversation you can have. So it becomes a kind of a differential relationship. It's a very hierarchical relationship. Mm-hmm. Even if you are friendly, that hierarchy still exists. But by when you are not using those those titles anymore, you are calling them by first name. Mm-hmm. That that already collapses the hierarchy in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It 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 makes you a bit of more of colleagues than as like supervisor and supervisee, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, even those cultural constructs of what is how, kind of generational relations, if you like. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's another thing that, that I talk about, is that when we talk about social identity, we talk about class, race, gender, and so on. We do not talk about generation. How age is a marker of identity. How, of course, children and adults are not um, inhabiting two different social worlds. They're inhabiting the same world but from different social locations, which are age-derived. So generation, just like gender, gives us an understanding of the relationship between men and women in society. Generation gives an understanding of the adult-child and child-child
1: relations so sick
0: honestly it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, so it's sick might be my favourite episode it's, it's, so it's, sick. Sick. it's so sick it's so sick. I'm going to use this myself I'm going to leave here
1: I'm going to quote you and say it was <laughs> <Yes, laughs> honestly this is yeah. such amazing research do you, do you get like good reception when you talk
0: about it like as in have you delivered papers
2: on this yet yes but I usually go to childhood studies conferences and then everyone all of us are talking about children's agency and relationships <laughs> okay. and so on yeah. but again even within children's agency there was a time when people talked about agency as Independence. so children being able to act on their own make difference and so on but now like even I am of the school of thought where independent agency is a neoliberal metaphor Mm -hmm. we are all dependent and we have to highlight that fact so agency is not independence it is relational
1: this is one of the things we were talking about just before this neoliberal agenda it's it's The way it's spread, it's, it, it posits the idea it's just the individual and individual yes. is not linked to anything. That, that's, it's never true. Yes. it's never. It never has been true.
2: And that's why I don't use the word individual at all because I think individual, is, everything is social. Mm-hmm. Even if you're doing something on your own, you can go beyond the human. So there are non-human uh, 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 subjects you oh, were dealing with. I'm watching
0: with. Netflix, that's social yeah. as
2: well. Yes, it is, it's, a kind of, it's an interaction with, with the media, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. even if there's not you no know, human present, you're interacting with a non-human agent. Mm-hmm. And that you non-human know, agent is 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 making a difference in you. Like mm-hmm. this pair of glasses, if I don't wear them, I can't see you. So this is a non-human actor in that sense. But it's, it's,
1: it's interesting, that's that kind of neoliberal cultural construction of someone who's... They attribute their success down to themselves. But all through that process, their parents, the people that teach them, the wider network who supported them, all that's created you. Yeah. But you'd, you'd hear people say, I made it on my own. You'll see on social media, all those kind of things, those, those kind of, I don't even know, those dead memes about they've done it themselves. Yeah, they they're so The they, self-made man. The self-made man. They owe it. nothing yes. to anyone. It's never true. No, of course even not. In, yeah. Even in individual sports, you have a coach. There's, there's I might, always a team. There's always a team. Yes. And I think that's I think that's lost, especially in when you see mediums or social media, you see how kids talk and how they kind of put across, like say for hip-hop, will put across that kind of idea that you make it on your own, you're a hustler, you have to do things by yourself. Yeah. It's not contextualised. And...
2: No, but also it's so interesting because um, again with middle-class parenting, middle-class children, there has been some uh, discussion about sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. So how middle-class Children feel that they're entitled to these oh, things. God, it me off so much, but God. at the same time, when we're speaking to this kind of eight-year-old, seven-year-old children, mm-hmm. and one child I remember told me she is like eight, eight, I guess, and she goes to a private school and so on, and she is very privileged. Her mother is a, a doctor in a hospital, and father is a management consultant. But she was telling me, you know. I, I feel so lucky. I can do all of these things. Oh. There are poorer children who cannot, and I feel very lucky. So there is was that sense of there are those kids. Yes, yes. and
0: you meet you do meet those kids. And I course. and
2: I and I guess that has something to do with the kind of ethnic location in that sense because they don't feel like they're entitled mm-hmm. in the same way that white middle class parents children might.
0: So this brings us on maybe to one of the most interesting parts of your research so you were talking to us before about how leisure activities outside of school particularly those that were teaching like skills and stuff were very much about maintaining acquiring class privilege but also you found in the research that there was a sort of ethnicized racialized sociability that came through as well could you talk yeah. to us a bit about that
2: yes so that happened in two broadways one was how this leisure lessons were used as sites for ethnic socialization so getting to know about their cultural heritage however that's how cultural heritage is defined and then sort of trying to develop a positive sense of their ethnic identity so that happened in one hand and the other was experiences with racism so that also happened in leisure spaces so and and the most interesting part with children was that the use of scatological metaphors in the kind of the racism that they received So being called poor-faced or like, oh, Asians are smelly and that sort of stuff. So, and in response to those uh, experiences, parents often had a conversation about, about race and racism, about ethnic identity. So those racist encounters in leisure spaces were prompted conversations between children and parents or even amongst children about ethnic identity.
0: That's so good to hear because that must be so like therapeutic for the children because uh, like just briefly taking on to my research, I've done research talking about racism <laughs> within families. And the pain that it's caused, like particularly my, my black participants that never had a space to talk about racism they experience with people that look like them, have had the same experiences with them, is so real and it's something that I've really tried to grapple with, with within my writing. Like how do I actually talk about how my research in a predominantly white space, having that that lack of connection with someone to talk about these these incidences is so is such a big part of your life as a kid. And if you don't have space to talk about that then it does affect your sense of self, I think. But
2: also, I guess, the content of the talk. So, for example, uh, one is a very good example of children dealing it amongst themselves. So one of the child faced it, like was told that, well, whenever uh, Asian children go to the toilet, they always do number two and they're always smelly yeah. and that kind of, it's very sc- using scatological humour mm-hmm. to talk about, so t- to have those racist ideas. So what she did, she didn't go to the teacher or to, the, or, or to her parents. She dealt with herself. She challenged it. How do you know? Where did you get this information mm-hmm. from? And sort of putting the other child, who was a white child, on the back foot, and then she sort of uh, drew upon her network in the school, so other Asian children, and then they, and she's like eight, eight, I guess, <laughs> and so then What's take that on, things? and take that on. So in that sense, that she doesn't even, and then she went and complained to the teacher at the end, but she dealt with it on the spot. So in that sense, those things are happening, those kind of conversations amongst children are happening. But I
0: feel
2: all like
0: that's a class thing as well, a little yes. bit, like because yeah, eight
1: years you
2: know, old yeah. understanding like how to.
1: But like I said, it's just. That's that's some, but I guess it's, amazing, it's how you're socialized, right? So again, sc- those,
2: the, the point we're making about they're used so, to their so voices, voices being heard. heard.
1: So in in, in our context, I, that would end up in a, into a fight.
2: Yeah. How my yeah.
1: parents taught me how to if someone bullies you, you hit them, you stand up to them. But
2: also, being a girl, it might be a gendered thing as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. I,
1: but you see, this is the thing. So my Parents, when they told my mums and her sisters, if someone bullies you in that context, you fight them, girl or boy. Oh,
2: I,
0: I see, see, yeah. in my, see in my see in my research, particularly the women, like you suppress that shit, you really? suppress yes. it, you don't deal with it, you talk about it with me when you're 30 years old in a research in a research interview. You know what I mean? Like that is so. It's so horrible and sad. Like, and I wish I, I wish children, did, I just didn't have to deal with. I wish adults didn't have to deal with it. But the fact that that eight-year-old was able to do that—that that is. It's, yeah, but also it's kind got of the hear, parents who grew
2: up in the UK. One of the parents I remember told me about when he was growing up, and he was growing up in a kind of just outside London. And again, he faced racism routinely in mm-hmm. school playgrounds. So this idea of this sort of romanticized idea of childhood nostalgia. Wasn't really there for these people yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because exactly because childhood was not that trauma of bullying of but, racism. Exactly. But
1: but but I had this argument with one of, the, of my older people. Like I said, you're not remembering how you how it was when you were growing up. You remember the good times, right? But you don't remember being a child and being. You don't have a sense that you're depressed, but you know that people are bullying, you don't want to go school. You want to school, don't walk past certain people because yes. there's fear, there's intimidation. All those things that happen when you're a kid.
2: And also with the acquiescence of teachers and centre, like sort of the teachers would stand like a few metres away, but wouldn't intervene. Oh, mm. don't get me started.
0: Honestly, so in the stories I've got about teachers, honestly, like yeah. the complicity,
2: the the lack of support to black and brown kids in schools, like... And this was, like, 1980s, so yeah. it was a yeah. particularly difficult time. But then... So these parents, we again, we hear in the media and everywhere that, well, children should go out and play. Childhood is all about unstructured play in the wild, whatever it is. For who? who like, exactly. It's coded
0: as white.
2: Exactly. It's coded as white. So yeah. these people's idea of playground was that going to the swing and then being uh, called racist names or being cornered in the playground. So they don't have that kind of rosy childhood memories of playground culture. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, so this this parent was telling me about this incident and then said, well, my parents were dealing with so much already, so I didn't bring it up to them. What I did, I told my cousins, who were a bit older. And then the cousins would all group together and go to school and come back from school as a group so that they can be protected.
1: But this is, but this, this is the thing, like... Again, I, I've asked parents about this from uh, like the Rush generation so my mum and her. And they're, they're one of the key things is they all went to school together. Yeah. They all went to school together. And if someone came home by themselves, they all got in trouble because you all meant to go and come home together. Depending on what, It doesn't matter what age you were. So Some of my older cousins would be upset that they, they went to go out, but they had to come home with all the others. But the idea that you, you work as a group to confront racism...
2: But also think the sense of kinship, because at yeah. least in India, or like in, in, even in the diaspora, cousins are not just cousins, they're called brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So they, you actually call your cousin brother, like which is not the case here, I guess. So you call them both brothers and sisters, and the relationship is of siblings.
1: First. Oh,
0: it's first. No. It's my, it's, oh, it's making me a bit emotional. No.
2: It's making me
1: a bit emotional, sorry. But I, like, for me, a- that's how... We see my cousins, I see they, they, they exactly. they're, they're close it's close like they're almost like sisters or brothers to me, yeah, right? so I don't know is that something I'm quite scared is that something we might lose as things go forward as we become more assimilated into this middle class culture which is more atomized, more individualistic uh, that's quite yeah. a scary I guess thing.
2: I different models of kinship as well, so therefore that model of kinship allows for that kind of bonding to happen in a way that. A model of kinship which doesn't see cousins as brothers and sisters, but as relatives, we'll have a different kind of dynamics, I guess. The social dynamics of it is a bit different.
0: So one of the things that's like screaming in my head at the moment as you're talking, and I'm thinking about my own ethnography and, and how it relates to racism, your research is in London, isn't it? So it's,
2: it's- London and the kind of the home county. So we of okay. Surrey and uh, So what about Berkshire?
0: if you're the only or if you're, if you're the only brown kid in the in the school in the class, like how do you access that ethnicised sociability that um, sense of belonging? Like, does that happen? Is it that your parents will drive you somewhere that there's going to be people from a similar background to you? Like, how did how did that work, or did that come up at all?
2: It did not come up because of the of the of the of the places Space. that they lived. Okay. So because these were places because London is already so diverse, and even yes. kind of the peripheries of London. So even like the the posh neighborhoods of Surrey or whatever, mm. and, and in private schools especially, and because yeah. and and some of the children went to grammar school in Berkshire, and grammar schools were like fifty percent non-white. Yes, because uh, South Asian children outstrip white children in yeah. in, in, in Evan Plus. So in that sense, they did not have that kind of feeling of being the only brown kid in the class. So
0: these, so so my what i would be interested, even though your research is absolutely amazing, can I just say that again? One of the things that I'd be really interested in is how this can, how your research could be replicated or not within predominantly white spaces. Yes. Because obviously there are families like the ones you've spent time with that are in these places that are a lot more isolated. What is happening there? Like, how are children managing and negotiating racism? Yes. And how is leisure helping that or not helping? Like... Yeah, that's but, nice. but
2: also the other thing that I was uh, to, uh, I thought I'd say here is the content of that conversation with parents, right? So mm-hmm. it was not only so that that conversation, of course, had an element of well, everyone is equal and so on, but there was also a prevalence of post-racial thinking in this yes. middle-class parents. Yes, and this is something I think Ali Megji and I think Sina's paper has talked about. Yes. this kind of this this huge increase in post-racial thinking amongst middle-class a black and um, sort of south asian uh, professionals uh, actually in the uk we can
0: transcend rice. yeah can, so yeah, it doesn't matter yeah, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one one mother
2: who was like um, uh, i think she's a doctor in the nhs in a hospital she said well i don't want my children to think of themselves as ethnic minorities it doesn't matter if they don't get anything it's they should think what i can do to do to get it what I can do better. It's not their ethnic identity. How
0: are you, How did you write about, because like, I've got all that stuff in my research and I'm just struggling so much to actually like, write about it without sort of like being a bit, slagging off the parents a little bit. Like that, like post-race stuff, or we don't see colour, we're going to transcend this, or our kids don't experience this, or blah, blah, blah. Like, How do we talk about that as sociologists? Without sort of like...
1: I think as sociologists, we talk about it because you can see the the instrumental value to it. And the kind of motivation behind it—it it comes from a good place. It comes
0: from a place. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, you're right. But it just when you're satting an into it, they're saying that stuff, and you're like, why are you saying
2: this? <laughs> and when I was being told this, I was like really interested. Oh, why do you think that is? And mm. so she was like, no, no, I don't want my children to think of themselves as ethnic minorities. They should be able to do whatever they want, and so on. So it is—it's it, coming from a place of privilege for people who haven't really faced that kind of racism or haven't gone through the kind of thing that the parents who grew up in uk went through mm. so that's 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 a very oh, important yeah thing. that's uh, a very big but, distinction but, isn't but it? also yeah.
1: I, it, you don't want your child to have those kind of negative feelings right in those spaces where you know you're going to face these kind of things so you want to say to your child that your your ability will see you through, be the best and no one can, and no one can it's an abstract thing but if you be the best no one can Cast out on it. No one can say anything bad about you because you are the best. And that notion of excellence is being drummed into like lots of West Indian kids just to be the best. And it, but it's a lot of pressure for people, like to, that kind of pressure to perform above and above and beyond your peer group.
0: But also, it's silen- It silences children. Like like I haven't I did haven't done research with children, but I've done retrospective accounts of childhood with <laughs> parents, with adults and when your parent is saying to you that race doesn't matter, it completely silences your ability to talk to your parents about racism you've experienced at school. Like, that sort of post-racial, neoliberal, like, mentality, like, obviously it comes from a good place, but what I'm trying to say is it's actually doing a lot of damage. Yeah,
2: it, it also obfuscates white privilege, yes, doesn't it. it? That white privilege is a structure that mm-hmm. exists, then gets sidelined, because you are sidelining race. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so, so I think post-ra- post-racial sort of ideas among middle classes, especially in the kind of black and ethnic minority uh, families, is something to explore further in this country. Mm-hmm. There's, I think in the US they're starting to unpack it a bit more, mm-hmm. the sort of notion of post-racial thinking among the black African-American population, mm-hmm. but I guess more is needed in the UK to really unpack what's going on. Because these people are not not stupid. They know the impact, the implication of this kind of thinking. They know where they're coming from and what effect this would have. But they should have some rationales as to why they think we have transcended racism or we we are in a post-racial meritocratic world.
1: I think when I speak to people who have made it, They, they, they see themselves. They've become unshackled from race. So, in that space, they're seen as by their white colleagues as equals, or they get paid more than them. Whatever it means, they feel that these things no longer apply. And I guess, from a kind of uh, kind of in a colloquialism, people see them. People from those communities see them as selling out. You've lost touch with your community who made you who you are. I guess they would have a different version. The people who have made it, they've said they've used those parts of their community to make them a success.
2: I guess it's quite similar to the notion of sort of making it as a working class person, so social mobility. Mm -hmm. That working class is an identity that you need to leave to Mm -hmm. make it. Mm -hmm. So it's not something to be proud of. Mm -hmm. That is why social mobility is such a problematic concept Mm -hmm. because it means that it is an inadequate place and then you reach the adequate place, which is middle class, and then you make it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I guess, with sort of the thing that you talked about, mm-hmm. that when you make it, you need to leave this inadequate space.
1: 100% like blackness is starting to be ejected and left and, yeah. and working class is starting to be something that you move away from. So especially in a class system like the UK, it was your working class and you want to aspire to be middle class. Yes, And the middle class is aspire to be what, upper middle class, aristocracy, whatever it will be, right? But
0: perhaps with your sample and what you're talking to a little bit is that um, it shows that it's sort of like you want they want their kids to transcend into like a global elite.
2: Yes, I, I, the, rather I, 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 than a middle yeah. class, like a global transnational
0: elite, would you say? They are yeah.
2: themselves sort of sort of transnational professionals who have that hold over the global market. Mm-hmm. And what you were saying, I think, it, it's so true about sort of this relational aspect of class. You always know who you are, but also who you don't want to become. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not only about who you want to become and also what you don't want to become. I think that sort of relational aspect of class <laughs> process really came through. Amazing.
1: Sick. Yeah.
2: That's honestly, that's
1: Listen, such an interesting... You know when you answer. hear someone's PhD, you think right, wow, that's a good idea. Still. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: honestly. What do I, I
1: think of that. Like, that is That's powerful, man. so like,
0: powerful. The mm, fact mm. that you found this through leisure, like what an incredible like, route into such important class but and no, race analysis but
1: credit where credit's due how you speak about it is engaging right yeah and you know your stuff so you, you don't put sometimes as, I guess as PhD students we talk about our topics and people you see people's eyes doing this <laughs> but
0: you are like
1: <laughs> but yeah like yeah honestly like you're oh by the time
0: this comes out you'll be doctor I hope yeah! so yeah listen a couple of weeks. call
1: me I'll be in your viva boom I'll be there hey. <laughs>
0: much for joining it us again this yeah. thank you so much Richard. that was amazing thanks for having thank me you. Thank no you. problem if great, you man. are able to join our patreon please do if you cannot we totally understand we will be back next week
1: next week boom well, you've been listening to surviving society with shantel
0: and tiso please like rate and subscribe you can also find more of us on twitter and instagram